Please turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Joshua chapter 5. We'll be, be reading the whole chapter. Uh, this is sort of the last of our preparatory passages before we get to the big action chapters in uh, Joshua. But it's important to take a moment to think about what the Lord's priorities are uh, as we lead into battle. So be uh, mindful of the priorities of the Lord as we read this chapter. So, Joshua chapter 5. As soon as all the kings of the Amorites were beyond the Jordan to the west, and all the kings of the Canaanites who were by the sea heard that the Lord had dried up the waters of the Jordan for the people of Israel until they had crossed over, their hearts melted, and there was no longer any spirit in them because of the people of Israel. At the time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make flint knives and circumcise the sons of Israel a second time. So Joshua made flint knives and circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Haraloth. And this is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the males of the people who came out of Egypt, all the men of war, had died in the wilderness on the way after they had come out of Egypt. Though all the people who had come out had been circumcised, yet all the people who were uh, born on the way in the wilderness after they had come out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the people of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they, had not obeyed, they did not obey the voice of the Lord. The Lord swore to them that, they would not, uh, that he would not let them see the land that the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with uh, milk and honey. So it was their children, whom he raised up in their place, that Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised because they had not been circumcised on the way. When the circumcising of the whole nation was finished, they remained in their places in the camp until they were healed. And the Lord said to Joshua, Today I have rolled away the, the reproach of Egypt from you. So the name of that place is called Gilgal to this day. When the people of Israel were encamped at Gilgal, they kept the Passover on the 14th day of the month in the evening on the plains of Jericho. And the day after the Passover, on that very day, they ate of the produce of the land, unleavened cakes and parched grain. And the manna ceased the day after they ate of the produce of the land, and there was no longer manna for the people of Israel, but they ate of the fruit of the land of Canaan that year. When Joshua was by Jericho, he lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, a man was standing before him with his drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went to him and said, Are you for us or for our adversaries? And he said, No. But I am the commander of the army of the Lord. Now I have come. And Joshua fell on his face to the earth and worshipped and said to him, What does my Lord say to his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army said to Joshua, Take off your sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for the gift of your word for the, the passage this morning that tells us of your priorities and informs us of what ours should be. Lord, we ask that you would uh, grant us with your presence in a special way, that we might see and hear from you, that we might be transformed because you are here. Lord, we pray uh, that your presence would uh, be with us uh, each day from now uh, to when we see you again. Um, coming in glory. So Lord, be with us now, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. So in seminary, uh, way back when, which was actually not that long ago, I had a professor 
who frequently talked about priorities and no, I know what you're thinking, it was not Dr. Dave. He did not care about priorities. No, just kidding. Anyways, um, anyways <laughs> he would often remind us, this uh, other professor would remind us that performance wasn't always the highest priority. At RTSDC, most of the students have families and jobs and their time at seminary is normally sort of packed around an already filled schedule done on weekends and nights, uh, sort of in the, the cracks in between uh, various responsibilities. But let's be honest, in grad school, generally your schedule doesn't really matter. The professors don't really care. They want you to get an A uh, because the theological training that students receive will help shape the church for the next 30, 40, 50 years. And so students le learning well is really, really, really important. But this one professor liked to give us a perspective. He liked to be sort of a little bit of a maverick, so to speak. He wanted us to have our priorities in order, which meant that he would sometimes say that it is unrighteous to get an A. Well, what did he mean by that? He meant that it, it could be and would be sinful and unrighteous to pursue performance, the A in this case, to the exclusion and neglect of all of our other important responsibilities. So if I were to neglect my wife and family because I'm focused so much on studying uh, theology or what have you, uh, I would be getting that A unrighteously because I shouldn't neglect all my other responsibilities just for the sake of performance. Because performance isn't always the highest priority, nor is it ever the only priority. Instead, being faithful to all of my responsibilities, chief among them, my family, and to the Lord, is most important. You know, I took vows to love my wife and to cherish her in all things, right? I did not take vows to get an A in seminary. Um, that said, it's still, of course, important to study hard and to do the best that I can with what I've got. Uh, but there's more to life than just one thing. And in our passage this morning, Joshua is faced with some competing priorities as well. On the one hand, he's got the commands of the Lord to circumcise the sons of Israel. And on the other hand, he's got to make good choices as the general of Israel's army, as Israel's leader. And circumcising all the men while in enemy territory doesn't seem quite the prudent choice. And while we already know which priority wins out, generally speaking, following the Lord's commands is always the right thing to do. So God on one side, good, always wins. Anything else loses, right? So we know how, to, how it plays out, but it's important to see why Joshua and God had the priorities that they had. So let's jump right in. Joshua and the Israelites, where are they? They're encamped on the west side of the Jordan, just inside the border of the Promised Land. And what's interesting to note is that Gilgal, where they're camping, is literally across a flat plain from Jericho. And so they, the people merely had to look across the fields to see the imposing walls of Jericho. This also meant that if I can see you, you can see me. And they were in full view of their enemy. And so it was a dangerous and precarious time for Israel. Militarily speaking, they're on the beach, right? Waiting to push inland to establish a secure beachhead or foothold on the promised land. But they haven't done that yet. And so they're exposed and vulnerable and susceptible to attack. And so 
everything screams at Joshua immediately preparing for battle. He needs to do this because they're vulnerable. They're in danger. Who knows when or if the Jerichoans or any of the other many, many, many armed and dangerous and powerful kingdoms are going to attack. Who knows when they're going to come, right? And so there are battle plans to draw up, weapons to get ready, commanders to brief, uh, food to, to, to feed all of your soldiers. The list goes on and on and on. And there was a lot to do before Jericho could fall. And a lot was simply a lot to do simply to secure their position. And what are the stakes? How many lives are depending on Joshua to do the right thing, to perform well as a military leader? He really needed to get an A. Lives were riding on him getting an A, so to speak. But God has a different priority. You see, God wanted to separate this generation from the one that had come before. The old generation had been disobedient, unfaithful, and mired in unbelief. They had had the mark of the covenant, which was circumcision, but they didn't live like it. Their actions were the fruit that revealed that their hearts weren't actually the Lord's. They looked like God's people, talked like God's people, but they had actually forsaken the promises of God and God himself. And that is why God God swore that they wouldn't enter the promised land In verse 6, the previous generation's disobedience and refusal to listen to the voice of the Lord really sets the stage for God's priorities here in chapter 5. You see, in verses 6 and 7, the passage tells us that part of the old generation's disobedience was their refusal to practice circumcision. They refused or simply failed to Uh, give the new generation the mark of the covenant of God. And so when the new generation is finally entering into the promised land, they didn't bear the mark of the covenant. There was nothing to signify to them that they were the Lord's chosen people, or to anyone else uh, for that matter. There was nothing to signify to them that they were the heirs of the covenant and had all the promises therein. And that was really unacceptable to the Lord because he wanted to be absolutely clear how conquering the land would go. You see, God wanted to place his mark upon the people to remind them upon whom the promise rested, the promise to receive the entirety of the promised land. It wasn't going to be the military prowess of the soldiers. It wasn't going to be uh, the skill of the commanders or their strength of numbers. Rather, Who is going to be the difference maker? The difference maker is going to be God. He wanted everyone, especially the Israelites, to remember and be reminded who was giving the victory. God's presence on their side was going to be the decisive factor in every single battle. Nothing else really mattered. And so the first and foremost priority is to be God's people. Not already people, but to be God's people. Hence, why marking the people as God's people was the first order of business. It didn't matter that incapacitating literally every single fighting man, while in full view of their enemies, was dangerous. It didn't matter that it made them vulnerable in human terms. All that mattered was being obedient to the Lord and receiving the mark that showed that I am his. Why? Because all I need is him. And we know that this is true because of verse 1. 
all the inhabitants of the land of Canaan, those fearsome enemies that threatened to destroy the Israelites as they were healing, they had already been dealt with before the command had even come. God had destroyed their spirit through the miraculous deliverance of the Israelites through the Jordan River. And so what are the Canaanites thinking right now? They're thinking, what kind of God can do this for his people? My God can't do that. And so they rightly conclude, this God is not a God to be messed with. I am not messing with his people. I'm not going out there. These walls between me and them, that's what I want. But the mark of the covenant, right? The circumcision wasn't just for God to claim these people as his. It was also meant to serve as a reminder for the people themselves for of two things in particular. First, that not only has God claimed them, but he was committed to them. The mark of the covenant brings with it the sure confidence that the promises of the covenant are theirs. The previous generation had forgotten that God was on their side, even though that they had had the mark of circumcision. But this generation, oh no, they would not forget what it would be like to live for several days in the shadow of their enemies, their armed enemies that hate them and want to destroy them while healing and being incapacitated. What do they have to do? They have to live by faith for everything, for the lives of their families, for, the, for their own lives, for everything, for several days while they receive this mark. And it shows them without a shadow of a doubt that this is what is most important and that God is going to deliver them no matter their circumstances. And so it was a sign and a seal of their possession by God. The second thing is that it accomplished, that it accomplished was to highlight that God's promise was not dependent on human obedience. Remember, the previous generation, they're not very good. They're faithless and they broke their covenant with the Lord. They had everything going for them. Remember, this is the generation that had circumcision given to them. They had manna to feed them in the wilderness. They had, this was the generation that saw the plagues, right? They saw the, the waters part in, uh, in the Red Sea. They saw the mountain on fire at Sinai. They had seen amazing things, countless miracles in Egypt and in the wilderness, and yet they still turned away because yet they did not trust the Lord. And thus there was nothing to commend the new generation to the Lord. Remember, children learn most of their things from their parents, right? The apple doesn't fall far from the tree, and what tree are they falling far, like right next to? Not a very good tree. And in short, the the Israelites are worthless. There's nothing to commend them to the Lord. And yet, the Lord is giving them the sign of circumcision. Yet another reminder that the Lord is faithful to his covenant when they are not. That he has claiming them for what reason? For no reason, but for his grace. And so everything that they receive is pure grace. Every expectation is that they would turn out just like their parents, and yet here they are in the promised land receiving the Lord's commitment to them. And that grace is highlighted in the next section. 
that grace that brings with it worship and a remembrance of all that the Lord has done for them. And so as we sit here today, it's hard not to think about some of the things that the Lord has done for us in our lives uh, in the past. And that Passover meal in verses 10 through 12 is designed just to do just that, to make us remember and worship. And so do you see the call to, call to worship here in Joshua 5? Before anything actually happens to inherit the land, the people are called to set their eyes upon the Lord. Everything that they do points to the Lord's primacy in their lives. Circumcision was a physical reminder of the Lord's enduring faithfulness to them and presence with them. But the Passover was even more significant. Remember, the Passover was the memorial of God's deliverance from the angel of death and from the bonds of slavery in Egypt. Forty years to the day after they had been delivered from Egypt, they were celebrating that deliverance in the promised land. Do you see the fulfillment of God's promise 40 years prior? Do you see the culmination of God's provision over 40 years in the wilderness? That's why we get the anecdote of that, of the giving of manna ceasing that very day. The Lord's provision hadn't ceased, but had sort of taken on a new and more full form. Instead of a provisional means of sustenance in the wilderness, the people were now eating of the produce of the land. And remember that this land is a land flowing with milk and honey. They are moving from provisional sustenance to abundant sustenance. And so this Passover is doubly significant. They weren't just being delivered from terrible things in Egypt. They weren't just being delivered from slavery and death. But they were being delivered into a land that was flowing with milk and honey. The Passover was never really about just being saved from bad things, from being saved from slavery and death. But it was also about being delivered into something much, much better. Exodus 12, uh, 11 reminds us or tells us that the Passover was, was to be eaten with your belt fastened, with your sandals on your feet and your staff in your hand, that you shall eat it in haste. You had to be ready to go. Why? Because you were leaving to something better. The Passover was the last meal before the Israelites would be leaving bondage. And where would they be going? They'd be going into freedom, into life with the Lord. And that first Passover was the first step towards fulfillment of that covenant promise made way, way back to Abraham to give his people a land. And now this latest Passover was to celebrate the keeping of that promise. And do you see the providential timing? Do you see how the Lord made it clear that he was faithful to his promises? He tied this Passover to the first Passover, which makes this really the second Exodus. Because that first Passover goes with the first Exodus, so this is a second Exodus. Only this time they were exiting the wilderness, a place of sin and unfaithfulness, and entering into the promised land, a place where promises are fulfilled, promises are kept, and the Lord's faithfulness is highlighted. So what does this all point to? The Passover and the rite of circumcision are meant to be signs and seals that point to life in the Lord. They point to the great promises and deeds that the Lord has done on behalf of his people to deliver them out of death and slavery and into life and life abundant. These are sacraments. 
And I hope that the language that I've been using to describe what God was doing through circumcision and the Lord's Supper is ringing some bells in your mind, right? It's the same language that we use when we talk about our sacraments, about baptism and the Lord's Supper. And that's what we get here in Joshua chapter 5. The Old Testament versions of the New Testament sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper. Both baptism and the Lord's Supper are meant to be signs and seals of an inward spiritual reality. So they are visible words, things that we can see, to, that we can use to preach to ourselves about an invisible reality. When our children and our brothers and sisters that come to, the, come to the, uh, faith in the Lord later in life, when they're baptized, the same things that Joshua 5 declared about the Israelites are being declared about them. They are part of God's chosen people. They are his and are heirs of the covenant and all the promises therein. And when we talk about the Lord's Supper, when we take it, as we're going to do in just a little bit, what do we declare? We declare the same things that were declared in Joshua chapter 5, that we have been brought out of sin and death, out of the spiritual wilderness, out of slavery to sin, and brought into the freedom of, and life that we have in the Lord, into the very house and presence of the Lord. And that happens through the gospel. You see, Joshua ultimately is a book of consequences. We see consequences of unbelief and disobedience in the previous generation, and we see the consequences of wickedness in the utter destruction of the Canaanites in the coming chapters. And we also see the consequences of obedience by the Israelites, that, they, it, that the Lord gives them victory. But what sin brings is death, judgment, and wrath, and that's coming for the Canaanites, and it came for the unworthy, unfaithful Israelites in the wilderness. And all of that is coming for us as well, because every single one of us is a sinner. Not, n- not, none of us are perfect, and none of us like, pe- like it when people say that they're perfect, right? because we know it's not true. We're all sinners. We're all in the same boat, destined for wrath and judgment. But thank God for the gospel, right? Jesus lived a perfect life, and he didn't deserve any wrath or judgment, and yet he took on that judgment that we deserve, the consequences of our sin by going to the cross. And so he willingly substitutes his perfection for our condemnation, and that's how we're brought into life and life abundant. And so the cross is our exodus, our deliverance from slavery to sin and death and into a place of life and presence with the Lord. In the same way that the Israelites were marked and claimed and reminded of their deliverance, we too are marked and claimed and reminded of the Lord's death and our deliverance. Truly, we have a great Passover lamb in the Lord Jesus Christ, and we are passed over from judgment and death. Why? Because we have the blood of Christ with us. Ultimately speaking, the sacraments point to the gospel reality that God is with us in a most profound and intimate way. God's presence with his people is being highlighted This is God's people, and he is delivering them unto salvation. Why? 
not just because he wants to give them a land, not because he's nationalistic, not because of any of that, but because he wants to be with them. God's priority led them to be marked with the sign of the covenant. God's Passover highlighted the gracious salvation and promise that God was fulfilling by bringing them out of Egypt and into the promised land. And the priorities and Passover point to his presence with them. And that brings us to the last section of our passage this morning and really the culmination of this whole chapter. In verses 13 to 15, Joshua is see, seems to have been by Jericho doing some last-minute scouting with his own eyes to see what lay before him. But then he comes across this strange man with a sword draw. And the quick interaction between Joshua and this man we see a microcosm of the differences between our priorities and God's priorities. And what's the first and foremost question on Joshua's mind? It's, is this man an enemy or a friend? Do I need to fight this man or not? And while that's certainly an important and contextually understandable question, because, you know, Joshua is alone in uh, enemy territory, and there's this dude with a sword in his way, Right? The, identity of the, of the identity of this unknown man doesn't really seem to matter to Joshua. In that Joshua only really cares about how this fighter relates to him. And so it's really a self-centered question that Joshua asks. It's a, it's a question that really only cares about how he relates to me and not about who he is himself. And so identity didn't matter to Joshua. Allegiance did. In today's terms, we'd call this partisanship, right? Are you on my side or not? And that brings us to the last section. Uh, oh, sorry, I've already read that. Yeah. Where, where am I? Uh, 13, 12, 13, we're 14. Okay. Sorry. Too many pieces of paper. And so where are we, right? He's asked this question, he needs an answer. And the answer is somewhat surprising from the commander of the army of the Lord. He just says, no. What do you mean, no? That's not one of the choices I gave you. You see, the, the commander refused to answer the question because it was the wrong question to ask. What mattered was who this person was because the question of whose side he was on would be settled by itself once you knew who this person was. And so who was it? The command in verse 15 really is what seals it. It's the same command that was uttered to Moses at the burning bush, which further cements the, recur the recurring theme of continuity between Moses and Joshua. The command to take the sandals from your feet for the place where you are standing is holy. It makes it clear that the very presence of this person sanctify the ground upon which he stood. It's the same reason why Moses was commanded to remove his sandals. Because he was in the very presence of God himself. And so this man with this sword that is drawn is the pre-incarnate Christ that Joshua had the privilege of meeting. And so now that we know that Joshua is in the Lord's presence, we can see how Joshua's question is kind of misguided. God is on his own side. 
And the question isn't if he's on my side or on my enemies, but whether or not I'm on his. And thankfully, the second statement of the Lord seals that real question. Now I have come. This man, God himself, was here. He was present with Joshua and by extension, the people. And so he wasn't with anybody else, but he's with us. And that's what matters. Now that God was present, the people were ready for whatever came their way. It didn't matter if they were going to be good soldiers or bad soldiers. It didn't matter if their commanders were inept or not. It didn't matter if Joshua was good at logistics or not. God was there, and that's all that mattered. And so this morning we talked about, we started by talking about all the preparations that Joshua had before him to do, but all of those fall by the wayside because God himself has come. And so friends, that's what our, that's what our hope rests in, that God is present with us. And our desire isn't so much to get away from slavery or sin or death or whatever, but it's to be restored to the presence of God. Everything else is secondary. And that's, what ex- that's exactly what we get in the Lord's Supper that we're about to celebrate. It's called communion for a reason. We are, by the power of the Holy Spirit, brought into, brought into the very presence of God through the sacrament. We encounter Christ in a special way when we receive the Lord's Supper. And so honestly, that presence is what we need. And unfortunately, so often what we miss in our lives. You know, we started talking about priorities and we went through the Passover to see how the Lord is present with us through our union with Christ and that the gospel enables us to be present with him, to be sanctified and one with him. But that same gospel informs the way in which we go about life. That same gospel that tells us that Jesus is with us impacts our life, not only for salvation, but in, in terms of the way that we go about life. And so let's close about thinking about perspective. You see, God's presence isn't just for the big moments in life, the big tests of life, the storming of Jericho and all of that, but also for the mundane moments as well as they prepare for, uh, for battle, which is somewhat mundane. I have to clean my sword. I have to sharpen my spear, whatever, right? When we were in school, how many of you guys prayed before tests? I, I prayed before tests. Sometimes it's righteously to, you know, Lord, give me, you know, a quick mind, good recall, all of that. And sometimes it's sort of like, Lord, I've got myself into a mess. Please deliver me, right? We would pray before tests because we know that those are big, life-changing moments. But how often do we pray over our required reading? How, how often do we pray over starting a problem set that was due the next day? How many of us are aware of God's presence when we sit down to study for a test? What about washing dishes for the millionth time this week? Most of the time, we simply grit our teeth and slog our way through various tasks. But as Leah told us in her testimony, we, we need the presence of Jesus in order to be conformed like Jesus, right? We need to see Jesus and have him here that we might become like him. And so 
we need to approach all of our tasks as Christians, not as just people that have to-do lists. And so where really is the priority of the Lord in our lives when we go about our mundane tasks that we have to do over and over and over again? Colossians 3 tells us to do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And to be honest, I can't remember the last time that I devoted my dishwashing duties to the Lord. And I certainly didn't give thanks to the Lord for it. In fact, I was grumbling because there are crumbs on the floor again. There's dirt on the floor again. But if I thought about the Lord's presence in my life, I might live a little bit more joyously. You see, the gospel gives us a different perspective, not only on the big moments, but also the mundane ones as well. It enables us to look at those daily tasks through a different lens. Instead of frustration of things getting dirty yet again, I can rejoice and give thanks to, that the Lord has given me children to clean up after, right? I can see this, never, this annoying, never-ending task of sweeping for what it actually is. Another way that I can love my family well, and by extension, loving God by loving those he has given me. And I'm not saying that we need to stop and pray before everything that we do, because we'd probably not get anything done. But what I am saying is that we can take the half a second to reorient ourselves to the reality that the Lord is with us and that he has given us things to do. Remember, Ephesians tells us that we are his workmanship created for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And those good things, those good things are not just the big things in life, but the mundane things as well. Those those good things are both big and small, life-changing and mundane. Do you see how the drudgery can be transformed into acts of service? Do you see how frustration can be transformed by joy, uh, transformed by joy, all because of God's presence in our lives? He has come, and everything else doesn't matter. And everything else changes because he's here with us. I get to serve him because he's with me. And so let us rejoice and be glad both in the big things and the small that the Lord is present with us. Let us pray. Father God, we are preparing to come to this table that we might be in your presence. And we come as people that do not have our eyes upon you. We have our eyes upon our to-do lists, our cares, our fears, our struggles, our sufferings. But Lord, we ask that your presence would reveal the truth to us, that would reveal what you have for us, the joy that it is to live with you, in you, for you, with your priorities and with your perspective. Lord, would you transform our hearts, transform our tasks by your very presence. Lord, you are everything for us. You are our portion forever, and so, Lord, we ask that you would remind us of that today. 
that all of our priorities, you are number one. And so, Lord, uh, claim us, mark us, remind us of our deliverance through your Son, in whose name we pray. Amen.